Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. It's the Good Day Health Podcast with Dr. Jack Stockwell, sponsored in part by Calitrin, the safe, proven way to lose weight and keep it off, and brought to you also by Prevagen, really good for your mind. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Jack Stockwell, back here again with another segment of the Good Day Health Show with Doug Steffen. You can get more information about me if you're just tuning in for the first time at jackstockwell.com as well as forbiddendoctor.com. I've been uh, working with Doug for a, well over one and a half decades. It's approaching two decades that I've been a part of his radio show. And as well as a uh, lasting, meaningful relationship with him as well. Uh, I try to make my presentations here at the Good Day Health Show uh, caller-driven in the sense of I have a local radio show in Salt Lake City. And my show in Salt Lake is on Monday, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays, immediately following the end of Doug's live broadcast. And if you were to go to simpleradio.com and search KTALK, K-T-A-L-K, you can hear it live over the internet. And sometimes I will pick up for further explanation of my viewpoint into my show, what Doug and I had been discussing earlier, or even things that he had been discussing with his co-hosts. Lately, the last few episodes here, I've been talking about food and uh, the direction that some of my patients, and I think perhaps you as well, want to move into a direction where you're able to actually put food on the dinner table as opposed to what is being passed off as food that, in my opinion, is leading to most of these degenerative disease explosions we see going on around the country simply because the body is malnourished and it's suffering from malnourishment by not getting the micronutrition that's necessary. Now, we can get an awful lot more of the nutrition out of the foods that Mother Nature has made if they're prepared correctly. So I was talking about Uh, this last episode, why we cook our food, because the comment has been made a couple of times, well, you know, animals don't cook their food. No, and animals don't make hydroelectric power dams. And uh, animals don't make coast-to-coast railroad uh, infrastructure or highways or airplanes or hospitals or schools or whatever else. We are a little different than the rest of the animal kingdom. Some of us are a little different than the rest of the animal kingdom. I can't say that about everybody, but I want to talk about why we cook our foods. We don't have to cook everything, of course, but some things are better off cooked. And I wanted to start off with meat, why we cook meat. Now, I've often mentioned uh, my local show in Salt Lake City, as well as uh, the Good Today Health Show in the past. When you look at the animals, the predatory animals, Uh, bears, lions, tigers, especially the big cats, 
when they take down their kill, uh, they're not having a smorgasbord of steaks and chops and fillets and T-bones and this kind of stuff. They're eating the organs. They eat the brains. They eat the lungs. They eat the heart, the liver, the kidneys, the adrenals. Um, because that's where the nutrition in the body is. Is there nutrition in the skeletal muscle? Well, yes, there is, but not concentrated by any means like it is in the organs. Uh, interestingly enough, when I am asked, sometimes I'm asked, well, why do we, you know, what's the purpose of the meat then? Well, it's still going to provide you with protein and it's still going to provide you with some fat that you need. But the muscles that exist in mammals, and I know this sounds a little simplistic, but the muscles that exist in mammals is to get them around to find their food. That's what it's there for. And why does it want food? Because the nervous system, where our consciousness dwells to some degree, wants to be nourished so that our sentient existence can go on. I know this sounds awfully simple, but this is how I started off a lot of my uh, public presentations, just talking about common sense stuff. Now, in a human being, you are your nervous system. You're not your heart. We can replace that. You're not your liver. We can replace that. We can give you a new kidney. We can even give you a new pancreas. We can give body parts, uh, prosthetic devices, different kinds of things to take care of old, worn-out joints, but we can't replace the nervous system. It just isn't going to happen, or at least not in our lifetime, I don't believe. And certainly the brain. And the brain needs ounce per ounce of tissue in the body, more nutrition than any other part of the human body, including the heart. And if it doesn't get the micronutrition that it needs, it's not going to work correctly. We can blame uh, dementia and other kinds of problems on genetics, or we can blame it on some kind of toxic poisoning that may be taking place, which isn't all that untrue. It's certainly true. But the main reason that parts of the body, organs, begin to be dysfunctional to some degree or another is they simply are not getting the micronutrition that's required. And by micro, I mean the stuff that's smaller than what you see on your plate. The macronutrition is the 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 the, uh, the carbs and the proteins and the fats and the desserts and all the different things that you you look at when you're eating it. Oh, that's a potato chip. Oh, that's a baked potato. Oh, that's a ribeye steak. But it's what's deep inside these things, down, down, down to a molecular level, is the reason why we're eating that stuff so that we can be nourished. And so uh, let me start off with just meat because meat contains uh, several kinds of connective tissue. There's, there's tendons, which connect the muscle to the bones. There's ligaments, which connect the bones to each other. There's these sheets of white fibrous tissue called silver skin, which surrounds the whole muscles, the uh, fascia-type material. You see a half a beef hanging in a, book or a butcher shop somewhere. You see all this white, glistening stuff. These are all tough, and they're hard to digest when they're raw. And the ligaments and the fascia, the silver skin, remain as tough as gristle, even when it gets cooked, if it gets through to the, the food process. However, the collagen that's in the tendons, interesting, will melt into a broth when they're cooked in a, in a liquid. And the connective tissue in the form of collagen also is what wraps up the individual muscle fibers, 
a collagen sheath will encase individual fibers that are grouped into bundles. And these bundles of muscle tissue is what we see as the grain of the meat. And it's these collagen wrappings that make raw meat chewy and tough. But when we cook it, especially long, slow cooking, especially in liquid, it turns that tough collagen into a soft gelatin. And so steaks and fillets contain relatively little collagen. They're, they're most tender when they're cooked quickly to about 140 degrees Fahrenheit. If cooked longer or at too high of a temperature, the muscle fibers will become tough. And meat that we eat raw, and I do, I do eat some raw meat, is either sliced or very thinly uh, cut across the grain like carpaccio or ground up like steak tartare or, or pounded. And all of these techniques just make the, this kind of meat presentation uh, uh, preparation easier to chew, easier to digest. But um, the, as the collagen webbing in meat melts away during cooking, the tightly wound muscle fibers begin to relax, which provides an awful lot more surface area for the gastric juices in your stomach and the digestive enzymes in our small intestine to do their work. For example, uh, digestion of cooked beef by the enzyme trypsin increases four times compared to that for uncooked beef. So when you cook uh, meat, you're, you're partially denaturing the meat proteins, which is what the raw enthusiasts are saying. But this denatur denaturization um, denaturation process continues in the digestive tract. Now, in addition to cooking, anything that reduces the particle size, such as chopping or crushing or grinding, always makes the food easier to digest. And acidity and salt and drying, like jerky, also promotes the breakdown of the, of the, the uh, protein. And if you think of marinating meat ahead of time before it's cooked or it's salted or it's dried out again like jerky, it makes it, even though jerky can be tough, it actually makes the muscle fibers, once you chew it enough, easier to digest. And animals contain glycogen in the muscle. And during the process of aging meat, that glycogen, which is stored up sugar, is converted to lactic acid, which, again, promotes even more breaking down of the proteins that makes it easier to digest it. When, we, um, when butcher shops will hang meat, uh, they do it to make it more tender because the proteins are, are partly broken down by the lactic acid and the enzymes that's contained therein. The old uh, Kalahari uh, hunter-gatherers, and we know this because of their mummified remains, They'd cook their meat until it's so tender that the, the sinews would literally fall apart and ensure complete digestibility by then crushing it in a mortar. So the raw food fattists, you know, point to a lot of different examples of raw food consumption, in particular raw meat consumption. Um, but among human beings, you know, all human societies cook some or even most of their food, including some if not all of their meat. And according to Marco Polo, the, the Mongol warriors could ride for days without ever lighting a fire. They would eat the raw blood from their horses. They'd put slabs of raw meat under their saddles to consume it at the end of the ride. But they looked forward to cooked food at the end of the campaign. 
and the Maasai warriors of Africa, you know, just relish fermented raw milk and blood, but still they cook their meat. And the Inuit consumes raw meat on a hunt or raw fish. Um, the South Sea Islanders don't need light to fires to keep them warm. They just to do it to cook their foods. And they even light small fires in their canoes to steam fish wrapped up in leaves while they're out fishing. One of the arguments against cooking meat concerns the loss of vitamins and enzymes because vitamin C will disappear when you cook meat. And while thiamine, uh, vitamin B1 and uh, pentothenic acid B5 and B6 also break down in the cooking of the meat. Um, so we have to have raw foods in order to obtain these nutrients. So occasional raw meat or raw organ meat, especially for vitamin B6, or raw dairy products or, or carefully chosen raw fruits and vegetables for the vitamin C and B vitamins is, is perfectly okay. But even better are the super raw foods, which are the lacto-fermented foods in which these vitamins increase manyfold. Uh, vitamin C levels in cabbage can increase up to 10 times when we convert it into raw sauerkraut. Uh, the B vitamins that are present also will increase. Uh, the enzyme-rich lacto-fermented foods will give us just great compensation for whatever enzymes that we lose during cooking. And so the practice of, of um, consuming small amounts of these lacto-fermented foods with cooked foods, you find that your food digests even better. Now, when I, I love a ribeye steak. And if I get one from the supermarket, I make sure that it's from a grass-fed source. And I tell them, don't cut off all that fat. I want that, pe that piece of meat to be, f f it's fatty anyway. You know, the marbleization that's a, that occurs inside of a, of um, ribeyes, well, even New York cuts or ribeyes up into the filet is what makes that meat so tender and so delicious is the fat that's in the presence of that meat. And so if I order, I said, don't cut off all that meat, save a large portion of it. If I want to cut off some of it, I will. But I get most of my meat from local ranches that allow the grass pasturing to take place for these animals rather than having them in those horrible commercial food lots, feeding them foods that cattle were never intended to eat. But um, when I cook a ribeye steak, and I'll grill it, and I eat it rare, mind you, maybe a hair towards medium rare, but mostly rare, I'll have a nice big old portion of organic sauerkraut to go with it. Or I might have some organic uh, broccoli that was just uh, completely baptized in as much butter as possible with sea salt on it. And it makes my digestion much better. So, I, you know, I do cook my some of my food. Some of them I leave raw. Now, in the book called Experiments and Observation on the Gastric Juice and the Physiology of Digestion, which describes experiments that were performed by Alexis St. Martin and Dr. William Beaumont years and years ago. And as I've said on my show in the past, if you want a book on nutrition and the subject of enzymes and vitamins, you have to get a book printed prior to World War II. Because after World War II, most of these things were of a synthetic nature and are just woefully short in their ability to provide you 
with all the nutritional elements that are required for good and, and uh, robust health. So in this book, fascinating, fascinating reading for somebody like me. You know, it may not be sitting there on your nightstand or on your living room coffee table, but I find this stuff incredibly interesting. So when we get back, I want to talk to you about what they discovered about the stomach's ability to produce the digestive acids and the enzymes and whatever else is necessary to accommodate and give you good digestive nutritional strength. I'm Dr. Jack Stockwell at ForbiddenDoctor.com. I will be right back with more of the Good Day Health Show. Welcome back. I'm Dr. Jack Stockwell at JackStockwell.com. Um, gratefully, a regular contributor to the Doug Steffen Good Day Health Show. In the book that I was referring to, Experiments and Observations on the Gastric Juice and the Physiology of Digestion, these doctors made some very interesting observations. They state that the inner coating of the stomach is pale pink. Now, they had cameras in there. And they, and they also did some uh, – I talked about this uh, fellow who had been gut shot. I think it was in the last, last episode. was gut shot, and the, the wounding was so bad that the stomach, the outside abdominal wall, never completely closed all the way post-surgery. So you could always see a portion of his stomach just sitting right inside this hole. And so he consented to be part of some examinations. And they watched his stomach and what it did when food was present and when food was not present. And so when food was absent, the stomach was a very pale pink color. And then the color would become much more red due to the infusion of blood during digestion. And in health, uh, in a healthy condition, uh, there's this mucus that lines the stomach. And the normal temperature of the stomach is about 100 degrees Fahrenheit, just a little bit, you know, higher than what 98.7 normal uh, body temperature. And when the temperature of the stomach gets too low, as when you put in a lot of cold food or a lot of cold drinks, digestion almost completely ceases. So the gastric juice is clear, it's transparent, it doesn't have any odor, slightly salty, and it's acidic. And since the time of the publication of that book, we have learned that gastric juice contains a combination of hydrochloric acid and potassium chloride and sodium chloride, and an empty stomach never contains gastric juice. The digestive juice, the hydrochloric acid, the gastric juice plus the pepsin and other things is never there until food enters the stomach. And so these digestive uh, juices act as a solvent of the food, obviously becoming intimately mixed and blended by the churning motion of the stomach. And this, again, was observed through the abdominal wall. And the stomach is capable of producing only a fixed quantity of these gastric juices. So they're produced in the wall of the stomach. They're released from the wall of the stomach, but only so much. So in other words, if too much food enters the stomach, if we just gorge ourselves, there's not going to be enough of these gastric juices to digest the whole thing. And taking in too much food, if you know you, we continue to do it, it generally produces, and this I'm reading this from the book, not only functional aberration, but disease of the coats of the stomach. 
So bile, which is, you know, di for digesting fats, never occurs in the stomach. It's only in the small intestine. And food is readily digested when it enters the stomach in a finely divided state because this allows the gastric juice to act on a very large surface area as opposed to what my mother used to say to me when I was a child and she made my favorite foods, Jack, quit wolfing down your food. Well, it was delicious. I mean, and I was hungry. We'd just been outside playing baseball for four hours. You know, that's what happens when you wolf down the food. It doesn't get masticated correctly. The surface area is too large for all the juices to act properly begin the digestion. Then raw foods like raw beef or raw potato usually leave the stomach largely undigested, interestingly enough. And the most of the food leaves the stomach after about three to one, three to three and a half hours. Milk, uh, boiled milk and raw leaves the stomach after about two hours. Boiled, I mean pasteurized. I'm reading from this old, old text. Um, leaves the stomach in about two hours. Very tough cuts of meat, such as heart, tendon, salted pork, take about four hours for full digestion. And surprisingly, a lot of fats only take about four hours for full digestion. In fact, Beaumont, one of the authors, said that solid food of a certain texture is easier to digest than fluid. However, soup that is taken up with bread leaves the stomach after the normal time of three to three and a half hours. And they also observed that animal foods uh, um, and foods like uh, uh, homemade breads and, and uh, porridge, oatmeal, malted meat, whatever, are easier to digest than vegetables. You have, a, you, have, you have some meat and you have a salad. It's going to sit there for hours in the stomach while the stomach is churning and churning, trying to break it down. The hydrochloric acid has very little effect on the vegetables. The salad is pretty well going to leave the stomach much the same way it came in. The meat, if it's chewed finely, if it's not too overdone so it's tough as leather, uh, will start to break up quite a bit before it leaves the stomach. But the, the oil on the dressing, whether it's uh, extra virgin olive oil, like I recommend, or something as horrible as soybean or canola oil, uh, will pretty well leave the stomach unchanged. And it takes the small intestine to break this stuff down. So excesses in eating or, or drinking uh, will fatigue. It'll, they, in their words, anger the stomach. Uh, whether you're sick or even if, interestingly enough, damp weather would impair the quality and quantity of the gastric juices. Damp weather of all things. So when uh, Dr. St. Martin had a fever, his stomach would appear dry and inflamed. And the, the secretion of gastric juice was minimized considerably. And when he was angry, emotionally upset, the stomach remained contracted and wouldn't open up for the foods to come in. As though, and when I read this stuff, based on my 50 years of studying these things, body is trying to tell you something. Your body is saying when you're emotionally upset and you're in the midst of anger, confusion, whatever, put the meal off for a while. If it's particularly damp and you have a history 
of threatening a cold or a flu or something like this when the outside weather is particularly damp and it's getting inside your home, your shelter. Put the eating off for a, for a few hours until the body can begin to get its strength back because when, the, when your body is threatened, the immune system sets in. The adrenals releasing cortisol set in and cortisol will inhibit the immune response. And overeating when the stomach is not ready for food will inhibit the immune response. Now, I know, you little things you wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning and you can't go back to sleep because you're worried about what's happening to my digestive system when it's raining and it's cold weather outside. Well, that's me. You know, I think about things like that, so I study it. And now I understand why when I am invited to somebody's backyard barbecue and they have the most delicious smoked barbecue ribs that have been prepared almost 24 hours in advance of, of marinating and smoking. And if I, and it's, uh, it's super hot and it's just uncomfortable to be out hot outside in that heat, or it's particularly cold and either one, I want to be inside the house. And I can feel my body reacting to the weather. And I can feel myself kind of not necessarily threatening a cold, but I'm the next stage to threaten the cold, uh, getting a cold. And I go ahead and eat those ribs, I'm going to be sick for a week. I don't know if your body works that way, but mine certainly does. So overeating, whether you're healthy or not, and, and eating when you're not feeling too healthy, uh, and you don't have a lot of hunger, one of the worst things you want to do is eat a lot of food because it will tax the system, the immune system will not respond, and you're going to get sick. All right, now, the expensive tissue hypothesis that they talk about, I think this is interesting. The relative size of the human brain compared to body size is higher in human beings than any other animals, including other primates. So the weight-to-weight ratio of the human brain compared to the rest of the body, no other member of the animal kingdom has that ratio the humans have. Uh, even compared to the chimpanzee brain, the human brain's about three times larger. And the human digestive tract is actually smaller than another primate of the same body size. In 1995, scientists Leslie Aiello and Peter Wheeler formulated what was called the expensive tissue hypothesis, ETH, noting that when the brain is large, the organism uses less energy on other expensive tissues, such as the digestive tract. And so the theory, the, uh, the hypothesis really, proposes that humans can get by with a smaller gut by eating easy-to-digest foods. And so the primary way to make our foods easier to digest is to cook them, not overcook them, but to cook them. So the original paper that promoted that hypothesis sought to explain how humans manage to have energy for their, their you know, large and, and very metabolically expensive brain tissue while still maintaining the basal metabolic rate comparable to other primates with smaller brains. And so the hypothesis holds that the high energy expenditure of vertebrates with large brains has to balance out 
with a decrease in the size of other energy-consuming organs, particularly the gut. And interestingly enough, we have found out that the gut is just an extension of the brain in many cases because they, we have found brain tissue in the walls of the gut. Now, isn't that interesting? Now, you've heard of the vagus nerve. It's cranial nerve number 10. And it exits the skull through, there's two portions of the vagus that comes together to form the vagus nerve. So there's a right and a left piece of it that comes out of the skull, not through the foramen where your uh, brainstem transitions in the spinal cord. They have their own little tiny, what are called foramina, little holes in the skull. And they come down and come together to form the vagus nerve that goes down along the throat. And the vagus nerve pretty well controls everything from, from, uh, from your throat down to two-thirds of the gut, two-thirds of the colon. And digestion is primarily, uh, besides cardiovascular and then the heart and the lungs, and, uh, but almost everything else is now involved with digestion. And so the brain has that connection with brain tissue in the gut that tells the brain what's going on digestive-wise. And 80% 80 of the brain, interestingly enough, is, is getting feedback from the gut as to what's going on inside our gut, as opposed to 20% that tells the gut what to do. Greg is a real Prevagen user and paid testimonialist. I'm Greg, I'm 68 years old. Uh, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, majored in business administration. I do motivational speaking in addition to substitute teaching. Part of the reason for my motivational speaking is um, I kind of feel like I have a calling or giving back to the younger generation. You know, the golden rule is do unto others, you'd have them do unto you. My wife Wanda is a um, senior flight attendant. She's been flying for over 30 years. I think most adults will start realizing that they don't recall things as quickly as they used to or they don't remember things as vividly uh, as they once did. I've been taking Prevagen for about three years now. People say to me periodically, man, you got a memory like an elephant. <laughs> it's really, really helped me tremendously. Prevagen, healthier brain, better life. Prevagen is available in stores everywhere. Based on a clinical study of subgroups of individuals who were cognitively normal or mildly impaired, this product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Doug Steffen here with Dr. Jack Stockwell. His website, ForbiddenDoctor.com. Also, you can get the story of his Nuka chiropractic practice at jackstockwell.com, located in Salt Lake City, Utah. Uh, he has lots of things to say. We were talking about this, I think, last week. Uh, vaccines, uh, the, the Amish community doesn't do vaccines, and they're very healthy compared to the regular countenance of all of us. Uh, yeah. So the study that we talked about Especially was, no autism. Uh, yeah, right, exactly. Jack, yeah. brought to you by Calitrin, by the way. Uh, Calitrin, I knew you'd get a kick out of that. Calitrin's been around since 1997. It's a drug-free way, a stimulant-free way for you to lose weight. Uh, you should adjust your eating habits. For sure, you want to lose weight. You should adjust your exercise habits. You want to lose weight. You should adjust a lot of things in your life to lose weight. And then you want to keep it off. And that's where Calitrin comes in it's very handy. It's been the nation's safest natural way, the leading weight loss supplement that supports you when you lose the weight. You lose it, and Jack will tell you, you put it on, take it off, up and down. 
it's really incredible how many people have their bodies go through rack and ruin in the name of being healthy. You lose the weight, ah, I'm going to gain weight because I want to eat. And then you lose weight in the back and forth. So let's make this, let's steady this, let's smooth this out uh, with the capsules, the powder, uh, or the liquid from Calitrin, available now at toploss.com. That's their website, toploss.com. When you check out after you've decided how much you're going to use this and how you're going to use it, uh, you use the code Doug for free shipping and the best deal possible at this moment because they change all the time. Toploss.com for uh, Calitrin. Thank you, Jack, for your patience. Hey, let's talk about mm-hmm. all these nuts. I want to, I eat. Lots and lots and lots and lots of cashews. Uh, once in a while, a pistachio. I have a lot of <clears throat> a lot of peanuts. So, what's on the list of the healthiest varieties of nuts, according to your research? Well, interestingly enough, cashews are not nuts; they're fruit. They're really listed as a fruit. They appear as a nut. They crush up in your mouth like a nut. I just wanted to point that out. But it's listed with a Sometimes eight. you feel uh, like a nut. Sometimes yeah. you know that commercial. Yeah. All right, number one, walnuts. Uh, really? Shaped like little brains, we we know that they contain right, the essential yeah. fats for brain health. Mm-hmm. And then ha- I'm just going to run through them: hazelnuts, okay. almonds, macadamias, because they're uh, very rich in monounsaturated fats. Pecans, Brazil nuts loaded with selenium, and various parts of your body need selenium. Cashews and pistachios. And I once uh, read a study not too long ago of these eight, three of them were particularly mentioned. If you can only eat, you know, if your variety only allows three, yep. walnuts, macadamias, and pistachios. Really? And if, if you had a good serving of those three every day, you are preserving your ability to avoid Alzheimer's. Of course, that study's been debunked, but... <laughs> but other, <laughs> well, listen, but other we'll, than that. We'll, we'll take it to heart as well. So cashews, I eat lots of cashews, handfuls of them. I notice they're rich in anti-cancer substances. Yeah, catechol. Uh, so, yeah, okay, so that's And they help important. to balance cholesterol throughout the system. Mm-hmm. I wonder uh, if... So if we were to compare cashews, let's say, uh, to... Uh, curcumin uh, is that because that's an anti-cancer as well do they have some of the same properties even though they're not alike at all and anything other than the fact they're well, anti-cancer uh, natural treatments any time you you take something from mother nature instead of some food processing plant you're going to be getting a variety of chemicals that uh-huh. over the thousands of millennia that we've been on this planet and further than that as our body, bodies have adapted over and over again to the to the local food sources that were available, uh, the the simple answer to this is almost anything that came directly from Mother Nature has advantage. Dr. Jack Stockwell on Good Day Health with Doug Steffen. Sponsored in part by Calitrin, the safe, proven way to lose weight and keep it off. And brought to you also by Prevagen, really good for your mind. This program was produced at Bob K. Sound and Recording. Please visit BobKSound.com.